From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, Ron Elving on the weekend politics. And also the differences among NATO allies over tanks in Ukraine. Alexander Hemmings' new novel begins with a shot that shook the world, then brings two people together in a landscape of war. And later, Lemmy Pulliam studied opera but went into security work when he was rejected for role after role. Last night, he made his debut on a world-famous stage at the age of 47. If you have a dream of achieving something, go for it. Be persistent, be consistent. My mantra has become, if you stay ready, you don't have to get ready. Bravo! First, our newscast at Saturday, January 21, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says the world cannot allow Russian President Vladimir Putin to disregard borders and terrorize a neighboring country. And if we allow this to go forward with impunity in Ukraine, then we open a Pandora's box where would-be aggressors around the world will say, hmm, I can get away with it. I can get go ahead, seize another country's territory by force, erase its borders, kill its people, destroy its infrastructure, and nothing's going to happen. Lincoln spoke in Chicago at a forum hosted by Democratic political strategist David Axelrod, who said he would not ask Lincoln about the document scandal plaguing President Biden. Biden said yesterday he has no regrets about not publicly disclosing their discovery before the midterm elections. An advisor to Ukraine's defense minister, Yuri Salk, says the country's allies need to question their pledges of military assistance if they remain divided over whether to supply Kyiv with modern tanks. Salk told the BBC that Western nations committed to helping Ukraine need to be several steps ahead of the Russians. Right now, for us to be able to defend our land means to be able to deoccupy our land, to liberate our territories. And for this, we need heavy tanks. For this, we need armored vehicles. But we need to be, as a coalition of free nations, we need to be one a couple of steps ahead of our enemy, Germany not behind insists our enemy. it's not blocking the delivery of German-made Leopard tanks, which other countries want to send. Taiwan's top diplomat to the U.S. says the island is closely watching the war in Ukraine as it works to prevent a similar scenario from happening in Taiwan. The Ukrainian resistance has uh, proved to be very resilient, uh, which is uh, rather inspiring uh, for many. Um, And we are also targeting our own defense reforms uh, in a way that will also uh, enable our defenses to be resilient and strong in an asymmetric way. Kim Zhao spoke to the Associated Press following a year of increasing tensions with China. Elon Musk due back in a California courtroom on Monday after taking the witness stand in a fraud trial. Musk is being sued by investors over his 2018 tweets about taking Tesla private. St. Pierre's Camila Dombanowski reports. On the stand, Musk argued that it could be difficult to make a causal connection between his tweets about Tesla and subsequent movements in stock price. For example, he said, he once tweeted that Tesla's stock price was too high and the stock went up even further. Investors have argued there was a causal connection between Musk's tweets about securing funding to take Tesla private at 4.20 a share and the swings in Tesla stock price that followed thereafter. A judge has already ruled that the tweet in question was false. A jury must decide if Musk tweeted the falsehood intentionally and whether he owes damages to investors. Camila Dominowski, NPR News. And this is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. 
This is the final weekend to sign up for health insurance through the State Health Connector. Open enrollment ends Monday night at midnight. Audrey Gasteyer is acting executive director of the Health Connector. She says a person making about $40,000 a year or a family of four earning about 80000 can get into a program with no deductibles. People who earn above that income amount can still qualify for help lowering their costs through federal premium tax credits. So there's even more affordability help on the table than ever before as a result of the Inflation Reduction Act. So there's really help for all kinds of people at different income levels. People can get more information and enroll through the Health Connectors website. A police investigation is underway after two empty shell casings were found in a Randolph Elementary School classroom on separate days this week and the week before. Randolph police say the casings were found in a fourth grade room and did not contain live rounds. Each discovery triggered a school-wide shelter in place. School staff also met with students to discuss the incidents. Police canines swept the school twice and found no other casings or any weapons. A report by the Massachusetts Juvenile Justice Board calls for greater investment in youth delinquency prevention and diversion programs. The number of young people referred to the state juvenile justice system has risen to its highest level since the start of the pandemic. Melissa Threadgill of the State Office of the Child Advocate says most kids sent to juvenile court are being referred to community-based services. Threadgill says white juveniles are diverted to such programs before arraignment more often than black and Latino youth. If you are in MBTA passenger mode this weekend, then you might want to give yourself a little extra time. Orange and Green Line trains will skip Haymarket Station today and tomorrow because of ongoing demolition work on the privately owned government center garage. To get to the Haymarket area, Orange Line riders will need to get off at North Station and then walk. Green Line riders will need to disembark at North Station or government center. It's 30 degrees in Boston. Highs today in the mid-30s. WBUR supporters include Yarl and Pamela Moon, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon, and thank you for being with us. The national debt reached $31.4 trillion this week. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen urged Congress to raise the debt limit, which it has done 78 times in the last 60 years, but the Republican-controlled, Republican-controlled House of Representatives doesn't seem to plan to do that anytime soon. NPR senior editor and correspondent Ron Elving joins us. Ron, thanks very much for being with us. Good to be with you, Scott. Speaker McCarthy says he won't agree to raise the debt limit until Democrats agree to spending constraints. Let's hear his explanation. So we think if you had a child and you gave them a credit card and they kept hitting the limit, do you just increase the limit or do you change their behavior? And how does President Biden respond? President Biden's response is to say, look, Congress passed a budget last year. They need to raise the debt limit to accommodate that and all previous commitments by the federal government. If they want a different budget, they should get busy on the process that builds a new one for fiscal, fiscal 2024. Uh, now, going back to that hypothetical family in McCarthy's analogy, if they want smaller bills, they should cut back, but at the buying stage, not the paying stage. The worst thing they could do would be to refuse that credit card bill when it comes. Yet that is exactly what refusing to raise the debt limit does. 
It refuses to pay current obligations hmm. based on spending and borrowing decisions in the past. Treasury Department says it can do a little fancy footwork to keep the country afloat until June. So is it, forgive me, just a game of chicken until then? Yes, as it has been several times before, when one party had the White House, but not both houses of Congress. Now, let's remember, the United States has never defaulted on its debt. As you said, the debt limit has been raised 78 times in just the last 60 years, 29 times by Democratic presidents, 49 times by Republicans. And when one party had control of both the White House and Congress, they've gotten it done pretty smoothly. But if one side decides to take the debt limit as a hostage, it can be a lengthy and suspenseful process, which in the past has led to stock market sell-offs and even a downgrading of the U.S. credit rating. Ron, uh, we can expect investigations to begin with the House Oversight Committee. And if there is an impeachment that would involve the Judiciary Committee, the Speaker put some of the same Republicans who opposed his bid to become Speaker earlier this month on those committees, right? Yes, that seems to have been part of the deal. Several, several were either added to those committees or kept the seats they already had there. They do plan to investigate Joe Biden, perhaps even to impeach him. They want to look at the business interests of his family and, of course, the classified documents that were mishandled. Now, the White House, meanwhile, thinks all of this amounts to overreach by the House Republicans. Uh, they think it won't matter as much to regular voters as it does to Republican primary voters, who may well be the primary audience for all of this. We also learned this week, or rather we did not learn this week, who uh, was the leaker of the draft Supreme Court opinion on the Dobbs abortion case last May. Are we ever going to find out or just have to wait for the book tour? <laughs> well, we probably won't find out in the near future. We may learn something from a deathbed confession someday. Uh, this was not an investigation by the FBI or some outside agency. It was an internal review by the court's own people. So we should bear in mind this was no ordinary leak. Many court observers believe it was intended to freeze the vote, to freeze certain justices in support of the Dobbs decision overturning Roe versus Wade. Without it, Chief Justice Roberts might well have engineered a compromise that left the basic right to abortion intact. And we should say Dobbs has had an enormous consequence for pregnant women and their families, and it was a major factor in many election outcomes in 2022, could be again in 2024. President Ardern, uh, Prime Minister Ardern of New Zealand says uh, she's not going to speak another uh, seek another term. Many have suggested that women chiefs of state are under particular pressure. Yes, she was only 37 when she took office in 2017. She's perhaps more popular around the world than in her home country. But it is interesting to see somebody doing it, resigning like this, in their 40s. NPR's Ron Elving, thanks so much. Thank you, Scott. The U.S. and other NATO countries say they're sending what looks to be the largest package yet of heavy weapons to Ukraine. This announcement sends a clear signal that Ukraine's war with Russia may escalate in the months ahead. NPR national security correspondent Greg Myrie joins us. Greg, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure, Scott. The U.S. and uh, its allies have been sending a lot of weapons to Ukraine through the war. Why is this one different? Well, 
let's start with the sheer size. This U.S. package of $2.5 billion is the largest single one, aside from one that was announced just two weeks ago for $3 billion. In addition, the U.S. and its partners are focused on two key areas for Ukraine. One is air defenses, which are needed to guard against these ongoing Russian missiles. And then there are hundreds of armored vehicles that will be going to Ukraine, which would be crucial for any Ukrainian offensive. Put all this together, and it certainly points towards heavy fighting ahead. Ukraine is going to get a lot of weapons, but not the tanks that they so badly want. How significant is that? It is significant. Ukraine says these tanks would be very valuable in ground combat. They'd like to have 200, maybe 300 of them. But the U.S. and Germany are not sending tanks, their tanks, which are considered the best in the world. The Pentagon argument is that it has put together a coordinated, good, overall weapons package that Ukraine can use in the very near term. They say that tanks, because of training and maintenance issues, would not be a good fit. Um, We should also note Ukraine does have some old Soviet-era tanks, and Britain just announced this week it will send about a dozen of its tanks. Ukraine would just like more and better tanks. Greg, what, uh, what will the fighting ahead look like? So right now, Scott, there's really two main fronts. First is the ground combat in the east, the Donbass region, and in particular around this town of Bakhmut. It's been contested for months and is still being heavily fought over. The second, of course, is the ongoing Russian airstrikes on the cities trying to knock out the power supplies. So both Ukraine and Russia are believed to be planning offensives. And for Ukraine, Crimea is considered the most critical area. And I spoke about this with retired Army General Ben Hodges. He used to command the U.S. Army in Europe and work closely with the Ukrainians. Crimea itself is the decisive terrain. That, that's, that's the end game, is the liberation of Crimea. Uh, as long as Russia occupies Crimea, Ukraine will never be safe or secure and never be able to rebuild its economy. Now, he stresses that the Russians are dug in there. They took Ukraine back when they first invaded in 2014. But Crimea is this peninsula that's sitting there out on its own. If the Ukrainians can cut off Russia's supply lines to Crimea, this would leave that territory very isolated and vulnerable. And and Greg, what do we know about Russia receiving weapons from, from North Korea? Yeah, the White House said that Russia sent trains to North Korea back in November. These trains picked up weapons and have sent them all the way to Ukraine. They're being used by the Wagner Group. This is the the Russian mercenary force that's deeply involved in the current fighting in eastern Ukraine. And as we approach the one-year mark of the war, we should note this contrast. We've heard a lot of talk about Western support for Ukraine possibly faltering, yet we're seeing a massive new package of weapons headed there. Conversely, Russia has turned to North Korea for weapons that are going on trains thousands of miles by rail, and they're being given to a mercenary group that relies on convicts who have been freed from prison to fight for Russia. NPR's Greg Myrie, thanks so much. My pleasure. Who was it Ibarak? How did they live? What did they dream? Who did they love? Edebarig is how the eight characters chiseled into the world's oldest known runestone seem to read. And I'm sorry if that's mispronounced, but anyone who actually said it has been gone for centuries. Runestones are stone blocks left with markings of the runic alphabet used by ancient peoples in northern Europe to modernize 
They look like lines, grids, X's, and zigzags. Researchers at the University of Oslo's Museum of Cultural History found Itabarug, chiseled into a sandstone block, about a foot square, found among burnt bones and charcoal in a burial site in southeastern Norway. Radiocarbon dating samples suggest the site likely dates from between the year 1 and 250 A.D. The stone goes on display at the museum today, January 21, 2023, 20 centuries later. Crystal Zilmer, professor of written culture and iconography at the museum, told the University of Oslo's website, The text may refer to a woman called Itabera, and the inscription could mean for Itabera, or, she suggests, Itaberug is the rendering of a name such as Itabergu, or perhaps the kin name Itaberung. Not all inscriptions have a linguistic meaning, she says. It's possible that someone has imitated, explored, or played with the writing. Maybe someone was learning how to carve runes. I like to imagine, say, a child learning how to chisel markings to say something about someone who leaps in their heart. Then again, Itabarag may be a curse or just ancient runic gibberish. Twenty centuries ago, you couldn't just scribble, as you might a phone number, a password, or a reminder to pick up oat milk. So much of what we call communication these days is casual, dashed off, thumbed, and abbreviated. F-W-I-W-T-B-H-L-M-A-O. And soon, we may let robots do the writing. I wonder how much of what we read and write today will simply vanish at the touch of a hacker's click or get left behind when we rush into the next shiny technology. At a barrack and a runestone may make you wonder, centuries from now, what will people discover and make of us? Will it be monuments, rockets, skyscrapers, novels and symphonies, or notes, jokes, and scrawls? What stays, what falls away, and what may take 20 centuries to be discovered? We can't know. We can only say what we feel to the people all around us in the times and world we share now. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 818. And ahead on Weekend Edition Saturday, you'll meet a tenor who just made his Carnegie Hall debut at the age of 47. That and much more coming up on Weekend Edition. It's 30 degrees in Boston with clouds around today and highs in the mid-30s. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Elizabeth Bain of Commonwealth Standard Realty, offering creative, custom solutions for buyers and sellers throughout greater Boston. More at ElizabethBainHomes.com. And Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com WBUR. I'm Joel Snyder with these headlines. The number of migrants apprehended while trying to cross the southern border climbed to an all-time high in December, but immigration officials say the numbers for January will likely show a steep decline amid a seasonal slowdown and new restrictions imposed by the Biden administration. Five Memphis, Tennessee police officers have lost their jobs following the death of a black man in police custody. The chief says they violated department policies during a traffic stop. Tyree Nichols died three days after he was arrested and hospitalized.
And Elon Musk is expected to be back in court in San Francisco on Monday after taking the witness stand in a fraud trial over tweets in 2018 about taking the electric car maker Tesla private. I'm Joel Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the NPR Wine Club, featuring wines from around the world, with NPR-inspired bottles like Weekend Edition Cabernet, available to adults 21 or older. More at nprwineclub.org radio. And from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort, offering a small ship experience with a shore excursion included in every port, destination-focused dining, and programs designed for cultural enrichment. Viking.com. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. The number of refugees admitted to the United States is at a record low. Yet there's a new program to assist them. The State Department is launching the Welcome Corps, a private sponsorship program that will harness the generosity and goodwill of American citizens to resettle refugees. And that, of course, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, who went on to say that private citizens, churches, colleges, and other groups will now take the lead on finding housing and education for refugees. Krishomara Vignaraja heads up the Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service. She joins us now. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. The U.S. admitted 25,000 refugees last year, even though the cap was 125,000. Were traditional resettlement agencies just strapped to try and help even those 25,000? Candidly, the answer is no. Um, You know, for the last few years, the limitation hasn't been the ability to receive and resettle refugees, but it's been how few refugees are arriving. You obviously mentioned the 25,000 that arrived last year out of 125,000. The year before that, we only received 12,000 refugees um, against a cap of 62,500. So the infrastructure abroad has really been the fundamental problem of the resettlement system. The infrastructure abroad, meaning State Department offices and Other agencies, yeah. Right. So, you know, obviously the pandemic uh, curtailed embassies being open, the ability to conduct interviews in person. There's been some logistics of how do you manage the vetting of the refugees. But it has been the, the problem of how do we actually get individuals into the system, processed, and then admitted to come to the country. Does this new idea help? Well, it seems that What is old is new again, because this pilot reverts to how refugee resettlement was done before it was professionalized into a federal program back in 1980. There are also things that private citizens can do better than anyone, like organizing a donation drive or helping furnish an apartment. But we do worry that sponsors may not be fully prepared or equipped for other responsibilities, like addressing the trauma that some refugees suffer when they come. There are complicated components of resettlement, like navigating the paperwork and bureaucracy involved in getting social security and benefits, getting work authorization, convincing local landlords to rent to a family with no credit history, and sometimes having to provide a guarantee. And then finally, vetting the U.S. sponsors is as critical as vetting the refugees. In Europe, there have been cases of Ukrainian refugees falling prey to human traffickers. And to a lesser extent, we've seen this in the U.S. as well. Do you have any concerns that Welcome Corps, however well-intended, 
uh, will just not give the people who are arriving the quality of service that, that you would desire? I think it's an incredible complement or supplement to the traditional refugee resettlement program. But I do think that there are important reasons for why we chose to professionalize the system. I, I think we can never do the work alone. Um, I think it's incredibly important to make sure that our clients are interacting and being supported by their neighbors. But that's where I think it's important to frame this as co-sponsorship, as opposed to just thinking that private citizens have to bear the responsibility entirely or uh, principally on their own. I gather, too, in this new program, there are lots of fine points to observe, like you need a group of five people to commit to the program, and they have to raise over $2,000 per refugee. So that's inching up about $10,000 for a family of four. Our hope is always that um, we created a federal program because we knew that fulfilling our global humanitarian responsibility required us to be a leader in refugee resettlement. Thankfully, there is a federal program that is well-resourced. And so, you know, we certainly don't want the government to outsource this to private citizens. What we want to do is bring private citizens into this work because we also hear from them that this is life-changing work for them. But we don't want to burden people and we don't want to limit how people can get involved because of financial constraints, for example. Number of refugees uh, is far below the cap. What do you say to Americans who say, look, I, I don't want to be heartless. I believe in helping my neighbor, but we have a lot of people who are struggling in this country without without throwing the doors open to take on more people. Well, I think there's certainly a moral argument about the responsibility. Uh, the U.S. has always been the global humanitarian leader, specifically in terms of refugee resettlement, but there is uh, a self-interest involved. And investing in successfully resettling refugees is something that pays enormous dividends. Uh, for example, there was a study that was done looking at refugees specifically that showed that there is a net contribution of $63 billion, even when you take into account the meager assistance that they receive initially. And so our point is, you know, we can lead the charge. Uh, we can take care of our citizens. We are a country that is prosperous and generous enough to be able to walk and chew gum. And I hope that we will continue to see the kind of commitment and bipartisan support that especially refugee resettlement has had for the last four decades. Krishamara Vignaraja is CEO and president of the Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service. Thank you so much for being with us. Appreciate you having me. U.S. military is having trouble finding enough recruits. Maybe they want B.J. Lederman, who writes her theme music, to compose a battle hymn. So with fewer young adults signing up, the Navy has decided to give older potential recruits a chance. Jay Price of member station WUNC sends us this report from Encinitas, California. Swami's Beach, one of the best surfing spots in Southern California and a kind of paradise perfect clear water below palm-topped cliffs. Matthew Allen calls it his office. On a recent spring-like morning, he was there coaching 11-year-old Ray Goodson. What I want to focus on today, you know what we talked about, easing into the session, finding your rhythm, not rushing it. 
Alan has lived a laid-back dream in Maui and Southern California, surfing big waves, fronting a bar band. I've been fortunate enough to make this a life for 20 years. To me, that's unreal. Not what you'd expect a 41-year-old surfing school owner to give up, to join the Navy. Alan, whose father is a retired Marine, had begun feeling like he owes a big debt to the nation that made it all possible. I'm always trying to balance how good this is with, can I give something back to deserve this? And suddenly he can, thanks to a Navy policy change. When Alan walked into a recruiter's office last summer, he was already two years past the age limit of 39. But a few months later, after he lobbied every Navy official he could reach, his recruiter called and said the Navy had raised its age limit to 41. That's the oldest of any service. The Marines, for example, have a ceiling of 28 unless you get a special waiver. And the Army, 35. But the Navy's national chief recruiter says older recruits can do well. We don't have a high attrition rate through the first term. Somebody that's 38 or 39 years old. So I think it's safe to assume that somebody that's 40 or 41 years old would probably be in the same performance categories. That's Master Chief Petty Officer Gerald Alchin. He says Allen's late blooming interest isn't as unusual as it might seem. Many older recruits wanted to join when they were young, but for whatever reason couldn't, or like Allen, just began feeling a need to do something more meaningful. A lot of times it's for that pride of belonging, the patriotism, the wants, or the need to serve something bigger than themselves. And literally being more mature, they often have a better understanding of what it takes to do well and are able to move quickly into leadership roles. The Navy has also eased other restrictions, including those on single parents, people with prominent tattoos, and those who initially test positive for marijuana, even though it's now legal in many states. Alchin says it just makes good sense to open the door to recruits who are likely to make solid sailors, but are blocked by outdated standards. Especially if the data says that they're going to perform at the same rate. Allen is a case study in the Navy's new rules. Even after the age change, he needed several waivers, including one more than 100 pages long for his 43 tattoos, mostly images tied to surfing and music. A coin-sized image of a spider web inside one ear held things up for several days, but finally that too was approved. Allen's recruiter, Petty Officer Edward Smith, said he's never worked with a recruit who was so motivated or who had to be. It was a few waivers. It was quite a bit to overcome. And he's been there every step of the way, never backed down, always welcomed the challenge. The Navy needs a lot more Matt Allens, though. Alchin, the national chief recruiter, says it's competing with civilian employers that also are struggling to find enough workers and have had to up their own games with more pay and benefits. Before, the Navy had an edge by offering benefits like housing and medical care. Now, though, it's having to go a little further and a little older. For NPR News, I'm Jay Price in Encinitas, California. It moves around on wheels, has free Wi-Fi, and built-in bookshelves. A library. Mobile one, at any rate. Last year, a team of librarians in Florida retrofitted a van with bookshelves and then hit the streets of Highlands County to spread a love for reading. Things have since gone well. Their mobile library initiative just received an award for public service from the American Library Association. Vicki Brown was the leader of the team and is a manager 
of the Highlands County Library System. She joins us from Sebring, Florida. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. How does a mobile library work? Who do you see come into your mobile library? So we cover five counties, DeSoto, Glades, Hardy, Highlands, and Okeechobee. They're all rural counties. And so um, we're serving those that don't have the ability to get to our permanent facilities due to work on maybe a farm, being retired, or on a fixed income. And a lot of people who just can't make it in because of the rising cost of fuel and other resources. So their budgets are a little strained. And again, since we're five rural counties, a lot of those where we're going uh, work in the agriculture industry, like farms or working in citrus. And so a lot of those individuals don't have the ability to go in the middle of the day all the way into town Mm -hmm. to get to one of our brick and mortar branches, um, even with evening and weekend hours. So because life is complicated, those are the people that we're targeting, the ones that don't have the ability to travel uh, sometimes 30, 40 minutes from their home to one of our uh, main branches. What do they like to read? Oh, our people here, they have a wide variety of what they like to read. Anything from James Patterson to um, maybe some Christian fiction. Um, We also have a large Western demographic here that loves to read those and fantasies. And you have Wi-Fi, I gather. We do have Wi-Fi hotspots on the mobile library, yes. Why is that particularly important uh, among a lot of the people you serve? So again, because of the rural nature of where we're going, there's not a lot of high-speed internet access in those areas at this moment. And so to ensure that those individuals can still apply for jobs, complete homework, or just use the internet to do basic research, or even kiddos playing games, it's really important that they have the same access. That's right. Games are important to youngsters, aren't they? Well, you know, they have to unwind at some point. (laughs) Yeah. I, I guess we all do. This, of course, is, is not the first Books on Wheels program. What, uh, what do you think particularly impressed the folks at the American Library Association? Maybe what was most impressive is that we're small libraries. We're minimally staffed. And to see everyone in these branches working so hard to try to provide the same resources that maybe a larger system would do is uplifting and inspiring to know that even the smaller library systems and branches, are we're really making the most with what we have and thinking outside of the box. Do you have a book you could recommend for us? I mean, if somebody walks in and says, I don't know, I like something to read. Oh, that's hard because there's so many good choices. I think usually what we say is, uh, what's your favorite television show? So we can direct them that way. If you're asking my favorite book of all time as the recommendation, I would recommend Anne of Green Gables, which is a Canadian classic. Anne is a very impressive young woman, isn't she? Yeah, she's assertive and curious, and she doesn't let maybe sometimes life's realities dampen her dreams, and we know that she's always going to go after those dreams. Vicki Brown is manager of the Heartland Library Cooperative and recipient of the American Library Association's I Love My Librarian Award. Thanks so much. Congratulations. Thank you for having me. And you're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Hot pot. Delicious. Bubbling cauldron of choose-your-own-adventure soup. It cooks in the center of a restaurant table. It's often eaten with big groups of friends and family on the Lunar New Year, which is tomorrow. Olivia Eberts from member station WNYC met up with a couple of hot pot fans in anticipation of the day. 
This pair of total hot pot obsessives are named Hu Ting and Tang Yosheng. The hungry 30-somethings are getting their fix at a Sichuan-style joint on the second floor of a newish and kind of fancy mall in Flushing, Queens, filled with clothing stores and Chinese treats. But first, off go their coats. Yeah, so there's a bin that you can put all your jacket and stuff because everything's gonna smell like hot pot. Yeah. It's, that's how flavorful oh. hot pot is. That's why usually you wear pretty casual when you come to eat hot pot. Who is casual in a cherry red tracksuit? Her family owned a hot pot restaurant while she was growing up, but she still cannot get enough. Because whenever I go back to Sichuan, I would have hot pot almost every day or some sort of hot pot, dry pot, hot pot, spicy pot. My family were so sick of it. Still, who says she's no match for Tang, who claims to have eaten hot pot almost a thousand times over the past decade, sometimes even six times in a week. See, that's why I call him the king of hot pot. Which one do you want? The oh, black one? I don't, uh, no, not the black one. The white one? Yeah. The black one's a little more chewy. Who and Tang ponder the menu. Can you get the goose intestine? Goose intestine sounds good, so they order it. Then they prepare the dipping sauces. Who makes an authentic Sichuan one with garlic, scallion, and sesame oil? Soon, a waiter who gives his name as Tomato comes to pour the two broths in a yin yang style pot. Others bring 20 or so plates of ingredients. We start with tripe, as Hu says is traditional for Sichuan style hot pot. Tong tilts his head back and breathes in the broth. New York Times critic Pete Wells also loves hot pot. But he says there are so many new restaurants, he's having trouble keeping track. There was a time, I think, when you could probably have named every hot pot restaurant in New York City, but that is long gone. Like, it's just the numbers get unwieldy. At this restaurant, outside the mall in Flushing, I asked Tong about his obsession with hot pot. He spent thousands of dollars on hot pot, visited dozens of restaurants around the world. He tells me his passion dates back to his childhood in Shanghai in the 1980s, celebrating the Lunar New Year. Once a year, for Chinese New Year's Eve, we were able to splurge on a meal, and we traditionally will have hot pot. So Chinese New Year's was always something that we all looked forward to, like a month in advance. And back then, you know, we didn't have indoor heating, so in the wintertime, we all just wore jackets indoors. And we all just would sit around the table with a steaming hot pot. Literally warm memories. Family getting together, everybody sharing from a single pot. A single pot of steaming soup filled with boundless possibilities to begin the Lunar New Year. For NPR News, I'm Olivia Eberts in Flushing. The Real Housewives of Orange County, Salt Lake City, Dubai. Fans love the lavish lifestyles and scandalous behavior on screen, off screen too, tomorrow. On Weekend Edition Sunday, Aisha and the Real, Real Housewives drama. You can listen live at your local station's website or at npr.org. And this is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. A new effort on Beacon Hill is aimed at fighting PFAS, the so-called forever chemicals. The man-made chemicals do not degrade over time and have been known to cause health issues. A bill being filed in the state legislature would ban the distribution or sale of food packaging that contains PFAS. The bill also deals with PFAS contamination of private drinking water wells across the state. This is the final weekend in Massachusetts to sign up for health insurance through the state Health Connector. Open enrollment ends Monday night at midnight. The head of the Health Connector says a person making about $40,000 a year can get into a program with no deductibles, and so can a family of four earning about $80,000. People earning above those amounts can qualify for help in other ways. You can find information and you can enroll through the Health Connector's website. In sports, this afternoon, the Celtics take on the Raptors in Toronto. It is 30 degrees in Boston, becoming partly sunny today and highs in the mid-30s. Overnight lows dipping to the mid-20s and tomorrow increasing clouds, a slight chance of some rain mainly late in the day. Sunday's highs in the low 40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Handel and Haydn Society. Feel the adrenaline-packed power of Beethoven's Heroic Symphony tomorrow at Symphony Hall. Tickets at HandelandHaydn.org. On last week's Wait, Wait, Emmy Blotnick figured out who Congressman George Santos really is. No, he looks like, like Marco Rubio's Clark Kent. I'm Peter Sagal. Join us as Secretary of State Anthony Blinken reveals his secret identity. It's an unusually diplomatic news quiz from NPR. Today at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Noom, a personalized weight loss program based in psychology for helping people change their habits and conquer their goals. Learn more at Noom. N-O-O-M dot com. And from the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the William T. Grant Foundation at WTGrantFoundation.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Rafael Pinto was there in Sarajevo when shots rang out in 1914, let's ask Alexander Hemmen to read from his new novel, The World and All It Holds. To the right of Pinto, a short young man, his hair also unkempt, a thin strained mustache above his lip, his eyes sickly pulled out a pistol. For a moment, no one could do anything nor move. Even the dog stared at him in bafflement while all of the reality hinged on that incongruous detail of a barrel pointed directly at their imperial highnesses. The Rittmeister's face tightened in stupefaction, the whole of it, the eyebrows and the mouth and the eyes somehow constricted and became bigger at the same time. The full reach for the young man's gun, tiny tufts of hair on his fingers between his knuckles, and would have grabbed it if the other man hadn't bumped him aside with his accordion, whereupon the shots rang louder than a cannon salvo, and then the world exploded. The world and all that it holds winds from Sarajevo to Shanghai from World War I to almost a century later, a story told in exacting and poetic English as well as a language unique to Sarajevo. 
the city where the author was born and that has held so much history. Alexander Hemond, the acclaimed author of The Lazarus Project, Love and Obstacles, the MacArthur genius who now teaches at Princeton joins us from there. Thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Help us understand what it's like for Rafael Pinto, who presides over a pharmacy, to see this horrible event, but not know in that instant how it'll shake up his life. Well, Pinto is a Viennese student who has inherited his father's uh, pharmacy. His father used to uh, provide herbs, but Pinto is excited about the new century of progress that is coming to him and to Sarajevo. And it starts with the visit of the Archduke. But the century of progress takes a different turn when the Archduke and his wife are assassinated, which starts World War I. Pinto's life has changed just like everyone else's uh, with that shot. He's drafted and loves his country, but what, what makes him feel like an outsider? Well, he's a Sephardic Jew in Sarajevo, and he's also um, homosexual. And so he, he's sent to war to Galicia, now Western Ukraine, where he falls in love with a fellow Bosnian soldier who is of Muslim background. And the story follows them all the way to Shanghai. Well, what do he and Osman find in each other? They are different. They just love each other. At no point do two of them pass through what we would call now a nation state or functioning society. Um, that world is destroyed in the first chapter with the shots in Sarajevo. And so they pass through landscapes and wars and battles and um, trying to survive in various ways. And the more that is the case, the closer they get. In the end, all they have is each other. And Pinto keeps longing for Osman well beyond the point of their parting. Yeah. May I ask, I've had the pleasure of interviewing you before, but I don't think I know the answer to this. How, how did you begin to write in English? Um, well, I found myself in the United States in the early 90s when the war in Bosnia started. And I had been a writer, published writer and worked in journalism. And I found myself in a situation of understanding that I might not go back and I, might, and I did not have access to the language which was being changed by the facts of war. So I decided to enable myself to write in English, and it took me a few years, mainly by way of reading. There's another language used evocatively, effectively, poetically in the book, Spaniel. How do we understand it? It's the Castilian Spanish that the Sephardic Jew uh, carried uh, after they were expelled from the Iberian Peninsula. And it was spoken uh, in Sarajevo and all across the former Ottoman Empire lands where the Sephardic Jews uh, settled after the expulsion. Why was it important you to include it in, in the book? I wanted to have a multilingual consciousness at the center of the book, someone who uh, can bring in references, thoughts, languages, words from different languages at the same time. This is how my mind operates, although Pinto speaks more languages than I do or will ever speak. But I wanted um, that kind of presence, right, that the world has extra dimensions to him, as does language. There's a moment in the book when he goes through all the words for stork in the languages he knows. Yeah. And each of the words adds a different dimension to the, to the stork as such. To me, this, this is how mine has worked on a, on a smaller scale. Am I wrong to think that it also reminded us that we all have a special language we speak with those we love? 
Uh, yes, I think in linguistics, there's a concept of macaronic language. It is what a lot of um, immigrants might do when they combine a couple of languages, say English and the native language in the same sentence, because they can't remember the words. So the, the, the language they speak contains Bosnian and Spanish and German and uh, English because they end up in Shanghai where English is spoken and they pass through what is now Central Asia. So they know some Kyrgyz words and Tajik words and so on. And so I wanted to create a, an idea of a language that only the two of them speak. At one point, um, Pinto muses, we just live because we are afraid to die. You know, I'm in no position to disagree, uh, and especially given what he has seen of life. But is it also possible people who've had to live through terrible criminal loss go on because they see close up that life is a chance to be taken if you have it? He says that and thinks that, but the counter argument, because his mind is kind of dialogical and he debates things himself, the counter argument is his love for Osman, the Bosnian soldier, yeah. right? And so without love, it is just, you know, biology of life and mere survival, so evolutional um, desire that's to be alive. And um, the necessary ingredient is love and what redeems him from such dark thoughts or at least helps him get through the difficult situation he finds himself in is his love for Osman and for Rahela, their daughter. Alexander Hemond, his new novel, The World and All That It Holds. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much. My pleasure. soul-stirring tenor of Lemmy Puller. He stopped singing for about a decade, disheartened at rejection after rejection for classical roles. But Lemmy Pulliam is now singing at Carnegie Hall. He's performing in the Ordering of Moses, and he joins us now from New York. Thanks so much for being with us. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, you studied opera at Oberlin College and began to go on a singing career. What happened? Uh, as you mentioned, it was just a number of things. Uh, I became a bit disheartened with the industry. Um, there were so many requirements that were heaped upon artists um, to not only sound good, but they wanted you to, you know, to look a certain way. So it was difficult for an artist of size to have much career advancement. And I'd always made myself a promise that if it ever stopped being fun, I would move on to do something else. And so I kept that promise to myself and I moved on. What did you move on to? Job to job and worked in collections and used my uh, language skills I had acquired in uh, studying opera to do foreign language calls for collection agencies. <laughs> I'd pay up immediately if you called me. You know, I was, I was not one of those who would, who would call and berate the customers and say, you know, pay your bills, pay your bills. I was very nice and, and, and basically just called and had a conversation with people the way I wished um, those who called me would have done. Um, you know, I did that for a bit, and uh, then I ended up in the security industry, um, working for a, uh, a large concert producer, 
uh, before starting my own firm and providing security services for special events and personal security services and things of that nature. If I might put it this way, was the, the, the physicality that you thought might have been a drawback in being cast in some roles golden in the security industry? It was. It came in quite handy. It was a good deterrent <laughs> to anyone who would wish harm on, on, uh, on any uh, client or event that we were in charge of. So one industry's uh, you know, downside is another industry's uh, positive point. What brought you back to singing opera on stage and now at Carnegie Hall? Well, it's kind of a roundabout way. I, after taking a leave of absence from my security firm to accept a position of field organizer with the Missouri leg of then Senator Obama's presidential campaign, his first presidential campaign, I uh, was doing some events in my duties and we'd invited the local beauty queen to sing the national anthem. And little did I know she got cold feet and decided she no longer wanted to do it and didn't show up. And so my boss looks at me and says, I remember on your resume that you used to sing opera. Why don't you sing it? <laughs> Wait, I've seen this movie. Go ahead. Yeah. And, you know, I said, you know, it's been years since I've sung. I don't know if, you know, the national anthem isn't an easy song to sing. Uh, he said, well, nobody's going to know. And I said, well, I'll know. And uh, he didn't leave me much choice. So I, I got up and I did it um, one time. And that one time turned into a couple of times uh, with other events. And it was during the singing of the national anthem that I began to notice changes in my voice. You know, it had been years since I had last seriously sung, but the changes were, were evident immediately. And they began to pique my interest and in, in the thoughts of, hmm, this is something different. This is something special. What changes to, to those of us who are not opera singers? What did, you, what did you hear? It had gained a certain warmth, had matured, and it had taken on a, a much more burnished, darker quality to it that I felt really kind of set me apart from anyone that I was hearing in the industry currently. Well, you'd lived. I mean, you hadn't just been on stage, you'd lived. Yes, and, and you know, those experiences all went into creating this new instrument that I began to, once the campaign had ended, to work privately on my own, nurturing and trying to build this voice uh, with the help, luckily, of videotapes from lessons I had from Oberlin. You have been back singing for almost a decade, right? Actually, a little longer than a decade. Made my first kind of foray out in January of 2012. Uh, for the National Opera Association's vocal competition, which uh, I'm glad to say I ended up, I won. And uh, that started me on a path that uh, leads us to us having this discussion today. <laughs> You sang with the great Cleveland Opera, right? I did, and uh, see Minfrit's Opera, you know, number of number of orchestras, a number of opera companies. Last month, made my debut with the Metropolitan Opera, uh, singing Radames and uh, Aida. This month, we're making our Carnegie Hall debut. What's it like to to be out there with your voice again? To be honest, it's been difficult to enjoy the experiences because so many of these wonderful professional 
highs have been kind of preceded by some extremely personal lows for me. I lost my father in May of 2022, and that was immediately followed by my debut with the Cleveland Orchestra singing Otello. I lost um, my eldest sister in November of 2022, and that preceded my debut at the Metropolitan Opera. Knowing how important it is to your family, is that going to make it a little tougher? Not necessarily. I've learned to try not to put more stress on myself than necessary. I know that I've done the work to be prepared. I am pretty good at compartmentalizing once I'm on stage, but it's in those moments afterwards where, you know, those thoughts may creep in. As with my Metropolitan debut, uh, I was able to, to push those thoughts back until it came time for the curtain call. I began to think about the importance of this moment and how much it would have meant to my dad, how much it would have meant to my sister. As, as artists do, um, we constantly allow ourselves to be vulnerable in front of our audiences. And I think that had to be my most vulnerable moment ever, to be standing on the stage of the Metropolitan Opera uh, and uh, sort of dissolving into tears at the thought of what what my father and my sister would think of that moment. I'm sure we're being heard by some people who nurture a dream and have had uh, some rejections and disappointments. What might you say to them based on what you've learned in life? Well, I would say to, you know, if you, if you have a dream of achieving something to, to go for it. In the going, be persistent be consistent and do the necessary work. My mantra has become, you know, if you stay ready, you don't have to get ready. You never know when that phone call may come, whether it's a performance or offer your particular role or a, any other type of job opportunity, but do the work per, to be prepared when that call comes. Tenor, Lemmy Pulliam who last night made his debut at Carnegie Hall, performing with the Oberlin Orchestra and Conservatory Choral Ensembles. Mr. Pulliam, thanks so much for speaking to us. Thank you. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. And from Imaginable Futures, supporting the Institute for Women's Policy Research, working to close inequality gaps for women and improve the economic well-being of families, IWPR.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. Thanks for starting your weekend here at 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It is 30 degrees in Boston, coming up on 9 o'clock as Weekend Edition Saturday continues. 
Should become partly sunny today with highs reaching the mid-30s. Overnight lows in the mid-20s. Tomorrow, a slight chance of some rain, mainly late in the day, and temperatures in the low 40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack College, offering online and on-campus master's in education programs and licensures for teachers. Learn more at online.merrimack.edu. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with NPR News, reminding you that your public radio station is a service, and the people who use that service are the largest single source of support for that service. Your old car can play a role. It can help pay for the producers, editors, and audio engineers and others who create Morning Edition every day. Your old car can do that. Here's how. Learn more at wbur.org cars. I'm All Things Considered host Lisa Mullins, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, police and protesters clash in Peru's capital with fatal results. Also, why have eggs become so expensive? Are the hens holding out for more than chicken feed? Are coffee pods really a way to combat climate change? NFL playoffs, the Bengals go to Buffalo, and it's expected to be emotional. And Dr. Henry Marsh's new book, A Memoir and a Meditation, inspired by when the esteemed British neurosurgeon got a discouraging diagnosis. It kind of appealed to my sense of the absurd that having been this all-powerful surgeon, I was now just another old man with prostate cancer. First, our newscast, it's Saturday, January 21, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. In Colorado, three former police officers and two paramedics have pleaded not guilty in the death of Elijah McClain. Colorado Public Radio's Allison Sherry has more. Elijah McClain died in 2019 after being forcibly restrained and given a large dose of ketamine by officers and paramedics in Aurora, Colorado. The 23-year-old McClain, who was black and unarmed, resisted arrest, but he was never suspected of committing any crime. The three officers and two paramedics were indicted in 2021 and charged with several felonies. Already, the defendants are beginning to blame each other for why McLean died. The five defendants have three trials set later this year. For NPR News, I'm Allison Sherry in Denver. Five Memphis, Tennessee police officers have lost their jobs following the death of a black man in police custody. The chief says they violated department policies during a traffic stop. Tyree Nichols died three days after he was arrested and hospitalized. Texas Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee is defending her proposal to amend existing hate crime legislation for crimes motivated by white supremacist ideology. The increasing amount of domestic terrorism 
was grounded on the surge of white supremacy-based crimes. Jackson Lee spoke at the NAACP in Houston, citing the mass shootings in Buffalo, New York, at a Walmart in El Paso, a Mother Emanuel AME church in Charleston, South Carolina. Critics say her proposal violates free speech and association rights. The number of migrants arriving at the southern border climbed in December to an all-time high. NPR's Joel Rose reports on official data released late Friday. Immigration authorities say they encountered migrants at the border more than 250,000 times in December, the highest monthly total on record, driven in part by a sharp increase in the number of migrants arriving from Cuba and Nicaragua. But that was before the Biden administration announced tougher enforcement measures, combining a new legal pathway for some migrants from those countries and rapid expulsions for those who crossed the border illegally. Administration officials say the figures for January show a significant decline in crossings. Still, the record numbers from December will provide more ammunition for the administration's Republican critics in Congress who have promised a series of hearings focused on the border. Joel Rose, NPR News. Germany is under pressure to supply its Leopard battle tanks to Ukraine. Berlin has not yet decided whether to send the German-made tanks or allow other European countries to donate theirs. However, Germany has ordered a review of its stock of the tanks. Following a meeting in Germany among Western allies, Germany's defense minister denied that his country is blocking the move, saying that the uh, German government is ready to send the tanks if there is consensus. And from Washington, this is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Governor Maura Healey says the pandemic widened education disparities that existed before the pandemic. Now she is vowing to close those gaps. We have the Student Opportunity Act and federal aid that we'll rely on. The challenge is helping our school districts deploy those funds as quickly and as effectively as possible. Know that I am committed to fully funding uh, our schools as outlined by that law. Healy made her comments at a speech to the Massachusetts Municipal Association yesterday. She also promised to help school districts pay for special education services and student transportation costs. The chairman of the Massachusetts Republican Party spent nearly $2,000, nearly half of that from state party coffers, to investigate other Republicans in the state. Several outlets report that Jim Lyons paid a research firm for opposition research on two state GOP committee members. Both of those members voted for Lyons for party chair in 2019, but voted against him in 2021. Lyons is seeking re-election as chair on January 31st. New Hampshire license plates suggest you can live free or die, but whether or not you can drive with a pet on your lap is now a hotly contested topic. In the only state that does not require the use of seatbelts, the legislature is considering making it illegal to drive with an animal of any size on your person. The lawmaker who introduced the bill says she has received lots of feedback in opposition to the idea, but says she also has received some support from law enforcement officials. Three states have similar bans or restrictions. Brooklyn High School is changing the name of its student newspaper. It's been called The Sagamore since its founding in 1893. The paper's staff says after spending several years conducting significant research into the name and its implications, it decided to make the change out of respect for indigenous people. It's 31 degrees in Boston, becoming partly sunny today, and highs in the mid-30s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation. 
working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon, and thank you for being with us. There's been more anger and violence overnight in Peru. Protesters flooded the streets of Lima, the capital, again last night. They want President Dina Boluarte to step down, instant elections, and a new constitution. It is the latest wave of political unrest that's consumed the country for more than six weeks and claimed more than 50 lives. NPR South American correspondent Carrie Kahn joins us now from Lima. Carrie, thanks so much for being with us. Sure, thanks for having me. You've been out on the streets. You've spoken with protesters. Why do they want uh, President Boluarte out? Protests first started last month after the arrest and the impeachment of the former president, Pedro Castillo. He had tried to dissolve Congress. He was this outsider politician from the rural South, someone who represented the forgotten, discriminated poor and indigenous there. And during those first wave of protests in the South, that's when more than 50 people were killed, mostly at the hands of security forces. And those deaths have now just enraged people around the country, and the protests have spread to Lima. And the demands have intensified against President Dina Boluarte, and protesters want her out. They want justice for the dead. How has the president responded? She says she's not going anywhere. She's defiant, and she calls the protesters vandals. Ustedes quieren generar caos y desorden. She said those that are trying to generate chaos and disorder to take power in the country are mistaken. She says the protesters are being manipulated or paid by outsiders, signaling her siding with the conservative forces in Congress. And she's, she does say she's still willing to negotiate with all opponents, but her opponents are digging into with demands for new elections and her immediate resignation. Carrie, is there any prospect for a compromise or... or some way out of the crisis? That's a tough one to answer. No one is budging. Political scientist Eduardo Dargent at the Pontifical Catholic University here says Boluarte, a political novice just like her predecessor, is playing this poorly. You cannot address a problem by insulting those that you are trying to bring to your side. No? And he says that while there might be coordination and outside influences, the protesters' grievances are real. Look, Peru has great divisions, and they're getting bigger. Economically and geographically, the country's export-led economy works better for urban Peruvians and has not worked well for those in the southern, more indigenous areas. There's a growing wealth gap here and a huge political divide that's getting more polarized with each election. And Scott, there are a lot of elections and political turnover in Peru. Since 2018, there have been six presidents, six in the last five years. Can that cycle of unrest and instability keep going on? It's muddled along for the last few years, but the country's struggling economically, especially since the pandemic. Poverty has spiked. Food insecurity is up. I was talking with Eric Farnsworth from the Council of the Americas in Washington, D.C., and he said the Peruvian case is just the latest democracy in the region showing signs of stress. If the political leadership now cannot find a way to uh, return calm to the to the streets, that that does open the doors for uh, bad alternatives. 
Peru does have a history of dictators and strongmen. Politicians are very weak here. Congress is hated too, more than the president. And the way the system is set up, they both have means of sabotaging each other and they keep doing just that without ever addressing Peru's deep problems or finding solutions. And Paris Kerry Khan in Lima, thanks so much. You're welcome. There's a phrase that dominates headlines these days, and alas, it is not time for pitchers and catchers to report for spring training. It's debt ceiling. The U.S. has reached its borrowing limit. Republicans and Democrats are divided. Economists are anxious. Later today, and all things considered, why the U.S. has a debt ceiling. Why one prominent economist thinks it should be abolished. You can tune in by telling your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. You may have heard the buzz this week about coffee pods being better for the climate than what was previously thought. But are they? Really? Climate Solutions reporter Julia Simon joins us now. Julia, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. And what began all this buzz, the articles and social media posts about coffee pods and the climate? There was this short article by Canadian researchers that ran earlier this month. It looked at the carbon footprint of your coffee. So it compares instant coffee to filtered coffee, French press, and those single-use coffee pods like you use in Keurig or Nespresso machines. The article writes that coffee pods may have less of an environmental impact than the others because they may waste less water and coffee. The machines that use pods also may use less electricity than the other methods. Now, that would seem to be encouraging news, and and there are millions of people and probably even more on their way to using single-serve machines. Oh, if only it was so simple. The first thing is that the article has not been peer-reviewed yet. That means it hasn't been vetted by other experts and published in an academic journal. And this research just isn't settled. A study from two years ago that was peer-reviewed said the complete opposite, that coffee from pods actually has more emissions because of the plastic and metals used to make the pod. The article that has caused all this media fury, the lead author says they hope to get it peer-reviewed. He's very surprised by all this media attention, but you know who isn't surprised? People who study media and climate change. Headlines like this that say, your coffee capsule may actually be environmentally friendly, they're alluring. Max Boykoff is a professor of environmental studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. Novelty can really drive a news story, something that could be seen as counterintuitive that would grab people's attention that otherwise may not be something that might seem newsworthy. So, I I, I mean, I gather from all this that talking about climate solutions uh, is certainly important, Uh, but you're cautioning we have to be careful about the ideas that we can put forward in our coverage. This is true because people will hear about this study and they'll think, oh, this big newspaper or NPR is covering it. So it has to be correct. We have to be careful, though, when it comes to climate change solutions. Boykoff says that while individual action is important for climate change, media coverage also has to take into account the role of companies like Keurig, Dr. Pepper or Nespresso that make these pods. And what are those companies doing about the carbon emissions of their pods? 
Keurig uses plastic for those pods. In addition to being difficult to actually recycle, plastic is derived from fossil fuels. Keurig says the greenhouse gas emissions of their pods is proprietary information, and they're committed to improving the sustainability of their products. Anna Marciano is the head of sustainability for Nespresso. In Europe, we are piloting uh, compostable capsules, but the aluminum is what we pride ourselves on. She says they spend over $35 million a year on a recycling program for those aluminum pods. Still, she says in the U.S., only about 36, 37 percent of those pods actually get recycled. At the same time, Julia, is there anything wrong about people wanting to do better when it comes to making their coffee? Oh, no. I mean, people also have reusable pods. They want to be responsible consumers. But let's not take our eye off the ball here. In the grand scheme of emissions, coffee really isn't that big as, say, meat or dairy or cars or power plants. Julia Simon of NPR's Climate Desk. Whole lot of thanks. Sorry. <laughs> you can resist. It's great. Thanks, Scott. Many Ukrainians jumped into the icy cold waters of the Dnipro River yesterday. It's become a tradition for some members of the Orthodox Church of Ukraine to mark Epiphany. And for many, it's about starting the year afresh with a clear mind. NPR's Alyssa Nadborny went out to see the custom for herself. Along the bank of the river, groups of friends huddle in their bathing suits and towels, deciding who will go first. About a half dozen men in their 20s race into the water. It's a tradition loosely tied to the holiday that celebrates the baptism of Jesus Christ. The Orthodox Church of Ukraine has long said there is no religious reason to be in winter water, but it's tradition. What is the thought that goes through your head right before you get in? <laughs> faster, 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 uh, don't scream. <laughs> Nikolai Pastichenko has been plunging for many years. This year, he says, the dip is a needed distraction, especially now and here. A Russian missile decimated an apartment building last Saturday, killing more than 40 civilians. He says, it doesn't really feel like a holiday this year. It doesn't feel festive. Then he wades in, waist deep, does the sign of the cross over his bare chest, and then he ducks. Once, twice, three times. Yulia Zhezkina is bundled up on the shore, watching her husband Vitaly plunge. <laughs> it's cold just watching, she says. In years when the river is totally frozen, people cut holes shaped like the cross and jump through them. This year is warmer than in the past. The river isn't frozen, but there are floating chunks of ice. Which prompts the question, what are all these people getting out of this? Stanislav Bajdenov explains he gets a sense of clarity when he plunges. It's like freedom, he says. Something he relishes since he's on break from fighting on the front line. Solidar. Yes, he says. It does feel like small daggers all over your body. It's hard to describe, he says. You just have to do it yourself. Ready. So, I do. It is very, very cold. All right. Alyssa Nadwani. In the Dnipro River. Woo! 
You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 918 and ahead on Weekend Edition, Dr. Henry Marsh discusses his book. And finally, it details how the neurosurgeon came to terms with his own cancer diagnosis. That and much more coming up on Weekend Edition. It is 31 degrees in Boston. Partly sunny today and temperatures reaching the mid-30s. Lows in the mid-20s tonight. Tomorrow, increasing clouds, a slight chance of rain, mainly late in the day, and highs tomorrow in the low 40s. This is WBUR. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. Federal health officials say this year's flu season seems to be losing steam. It kicked off with a roar, and according to the CDC, flu has killed some 17,000 people in the U.S. over the past three and a half months. The CDC now says flu as well as RSV cases are declining, but that COVID cases are going up. Executions in Arizona are on hold. The state's attorney general says she will not seek to carry out executions while a review of Arizona's death penalty protocols is completed. The review was ordered by Democratic Governor Katie Hobbs. And the NFL playoffs resume this weekend with divisional round games. There are two today. Kansas City plays Jacksonville and Philadelphia plays the New York Giants. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Cruise Lines, cruising the Mississippi River, where passengers can experience Southern culture and visit Civil War battlefields. Learn more at AmericanCruiseLines.com NPR. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. The Iranian government's violent crackdown on protesters continues. Four months after demonstrations first erupted, thousands of people have been detained. Hundreds have been killed, according to the UN's Human Rights Office. The Iranian government has moved from detentions and beatings to executions, and more executions are expected. Gisunia focuses on human rights violations and international crimes at the Atlantic Council and joins us now. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, from what you can tell, how is the Iranian government using the death penalty against protesters? Well, for years, the Islamic Republic has been the leading global executioner per capita. But with the recent events, we see that the pace of executions has accelerated. The sort of interventions that defense counsel would maybe be able to make in the past on behalf of somebody who is in the dock has been completely eroded. And protesters are being arrested and then sentenced to death and killed in the space of 20, 30 days. Doesn't sound like much of a trial. 
No, first of all, these trials are not open to the public. The ones that are in revolutionary courts, which often deal with the crimes that are alleged against against protesters, corruption on earth, waging war against God, and other sort of trumped up spurious national security focused charges. But when there are trials, they're reported to last maybe five minutes, 10 minutes. Often the defendants don't even know what evidence is being used against them until the day of. They are often not given counsel of their own choosing. Um, and so there are really no due process protections in, in place. And as you mentioned, the charges are, well, nothing we would recognize from capital crimes here. They're not murder. They're not treason necessarily. Yeah, under international law, there is an exception um, for use of the death penalty. Um, most human rights advocates are completely for abolition of the death penalty worldwide and, you know, stick to that. But there are some exceptions under international law. However, they have to be for the most serious crimes and there has to be due process protections in any trial. By both measures, um, the Islamic Republic is absolutely failing to meet their obligations under international law, under the ICCPR, which they are a signatory to. So they are they are failing in that route. And, and what I should mention is that these individuals who are being executed are 20, 21, 22-year-old boys, really, who are being executed simply because they decided to participate in one of these protests and exercise their rights guaranteed under international law. So this definitely needs to come to an immediate end. These are people who have their whole lives before them and they're given no chance to defend themselves and they're being sentenced to death on trumped up charges. Other governments need to take a really strong approach with the Islamic Republic and, and bring this to an end. Do we have any idea of the numbers of people who've been executed? There have been about eight executions, if I'm not mistaken, up to now. But there's about 100 protesters on death row at the moment who are e either have been sentenced to death or are going to be sentenced to death based on the charges that have been brought against them. Another 700 protesters have been sentenced to very draconian sentences. So that's also a major problem. And the other thing that um, has been not overlooked, but that we should really draw attention to is that some of the protesters that are released have been severely tortured, are then reportedly, according to the state, dying from quote unquote suicide. The Center for Human Rights in Iran, an, an NGO that documents these violations, just came out with a report discussing these very mysterious quote unquote suicides. And the families are convinced that these are not suicides. These are people who died under custodial torture or who were otherwise disappeared and killed. And the state is now trying to paint it as if the protesters took their own lives. Is there any indication from what you can tell that there, there's any force on earth that would discourage Iran from doing this? There is one really important action that has not been taken, which is that states that do have diplomatic relations with the Islamic Republic need to immediately recall their ambassadors and downgrade diplomatic relations. We saw that the UK has done this because an Iranian British national was executed a few days back. Um, but this needs to be a coordinated approach whereby these countries do this together to send a very strong political signal to the Islamic Republic that the executions cannot continue and that this isn't going to be tolerated. Gisunia of the Atlantic Council, thanks so much. 
Thank you. Grocery prices for main household staples may be alarming these days, including the price of eggs. In December, egg prices were up 60% from a year earlier. It's according to Consumer Price Index data released by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Ron Eichner owns Eichner's Family Farm in Wexford, Pennsylvania. Mr. Eichner, thanks for being with us. You're welcome, Scott. Why do eggs cost so much more? Well, from my perspective, you know, really down to four items. One, the cost of feed. Number two, the cost of electric. Number three, the cost of my carton. And number four, my nutritional feed fortification that I enhance my nutritional values in the egg with. Mm. So every time prices go up for you, they go up for the people who buy them, right? Yeah, I don't instantly, Scott, pick up the price, but usually with a, with a feed, if it's dramatic, you know, then I'll, I'll take it up then. Same thing with the electric. But this year, my feed cost has jumped 26%. My electric cost jumped 30%. And uh, my cost of cartons are up 45%. You know, these are things that you have to escalate it now into your retail product because then you're working for less. And there's really no way you can you can change those prices, is there? No, not really. You know, I mean, the, the, the big players in the, in the poultry industry or laying hens, I mean, they have a lot of things that they can do. You know, they can control a lot of the costs. Uh, they have buying power, but as a small producer, mm-hmm. all you can do is uh, do the best you can. But the nutritional fortification is really my gold nugget because I'm producing some something that no one else is producing. How much have you had to raise your prices, may we ask? Well, if we just focus on the, the calendar, uh, January of 2022 through December, my extra large whites in January were 370. By October, they were 420. And then by December, they were 510. Wow. Now, and at the same time, do you have to worry that if the prices get too high, people just won't buy eggs anymore? Well, yeah, that can be a little bit of pushback. But, you know, I have a hard base of customers that they know the difference between a, a high quality egg and, and your average egg. Uh, but I have people coming to my farm market now saying, wow, at $5 for a dozen of large, don't you think you should be $7 like in the store? But when the egg prices drop, a lot of my costs don't drop off. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I. I got to maintain that balance. What do you hear from other producers? I get emails from National Poultry Associations, and basically, you know, they're, they're talking, in this case now, the avian flu, that's the biggest target. Sadly, a lot of the egg production, we focus on the egg, mm-hmm. they're raised on large farms, or some people call factory farms, and there could be 500,000 or a million and a half, and, and that's where it can really turn catastrophic. Yeah. So what do you think will happen to egg prices, um, I don't know, for the next, let's say, until between now and summer? They're probably going to decline a bit, but, you know, it takes 20 to 22 weeks for a day-old chick to develop into a hen and, and to lay eggs. So, you know, you're at five to five months. And then, you know, not to drag politics in, but, you know, there's a global mess with inflation. Ron Eichner of Eichner's Family Farm in Wexford, Pennsylvania. Thanks so much, sir. You betcha, Scott. Anytime at all. A group of black citizens in Oregon says a local hospital and the city of Portland worked together decades ago to wrongfully take their family's property. Now they're seeking compensation through a federal civil lawsuit. Katie Riddle reports. It's been more than 50 years since he moved away from his neighborhood in North Portland. But Claude Bowles can still remember the smell. Fresh baked bread. The bakery 
uh, that was just right across the street from where my grandparents lived. He describes a kind of blissful freedom that he and his six siblings enjoyed. We'd go over there and they would just hand us hot bread out of the window of the bakery. And we'd take it to my grandmother's house. We'd slather it with butter. His grandparents' house is no longer standing. He points to where it used to be on an old map. This is their house right here. 223 North Cook Street. Today, Bowles' lawyers argue the house would be worth close to a half million dollars. Where their home stood, it's a parking lot now. And, you know, and when I, I think about it, yeah, it just kind of, you know, it does something to me. That parking lot is adjacent to Legacy Emanuel Hospital. That's who acquired the house from his family. Bowles is one of more than two dozen descendants suing the hospital and the city of Portland. Bowles declined to comment for this story. In a statement, they said they're reviewing the case. I remember the anguish of my grandfather not understanding what was happening. What was happening to his grandfather, says Bowles, was that the hospital was intimidating him, forcing him to give up his house. The family had moved from Alabama to Oregon. His grandfather found work there in a foundry. The house was 3,000 square feet on three levels. It was his legacy. I remember him always telling me, you know, hey, you have four sisters that, you know, they may or may not meet a man that will treat them nicely. And if that's the case, they can always come here because I've made a way for them. And this is what I want you to do. You always, you hang on to this house. And what do you remember about once your grandparents had to move? What was the new place like? Ooh, wow, that was very different. Um, we ended up, I mean, spreading out uh, into a more Caucasian kind of neighborhood where you weren't really accepted. A very functioning, close-knit neighborhood that's supporting its people is an extremely precious and all-too-rare thing. Mindy Fololove studies urban policy and health at the New School in New York. She's researched something called the Federal Urban Renewal Program from 1949 to 1973. There were thousands of these kinds of projects. Many city governments argued these neighborhoods were blighted. In the end, Fololove says, roughly a million people were pushed out of their homes, two-thirds people of color. And so to have that snatched away from you without your consent, this is a, a very brutal, very brutal thing. And many people are suffering to one degree or another decades later. Urban renewal policies were undoubtedly racist, says Full of Love, but they were legal. This case in Portland accuses the city and the hospital of violating the law even then. The suit claims they conspired, bullied, and coerced Black people into selling their homes without fair compensation. Then, the plaintiffs claim, the hospital itself would create blight by neglecting the empty houses. This is my grandmother. Juanita Biggs is another plaintiff. She's holding a picture. And we call her Big Mama. And I love you, Big Mama. Big stands with the help of her walker by a freeway on-ramp. She points to a passerby. The house would, be, would have been where, he, where he's walking. That's, that's where her house was. About 50 feet, maybe. Yeah, and, and this area here was the house where another family stayed. Biggs is almost 82 now. She was a young woman when her family was forced to move. You know, you see your grandparents, and you're there with them playing checkers and everything and talking about good old times and stuff. And then everybody's happy. And then all of a sudden, everybody's sad. 
Juanita Big says coming to this neighborhood makes her sad for her family, for Big Mama, and everything taken from them. For NPR News, I'm Katia Riddle in Portland, Oregon. Edition is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed, enjoy expanded content, or connect to your favorite member station. And you're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. It's been an unusually warm winter in the Northeast, and one of the many industries affected by the high temperatures is logging. Loggers need frozen ground to reach some forested areas. But Henry Epp from Vermont Public Reports, the ground just hasn't been frozen. Brian LaFoe is operating a machine called a forwarder in a patch of woods in East Burke, a small town in northeastern Vermont. He maneuvers a mechanized arm to pick up logs that his son-in-law felled, split, and piled along a road they cut through the forest. The heavy machinery has left ruts in the ground. Usually, that's not an issue at this time of year. In the wintertime, you got this wet ground. The ground gets froze up. Our machines go over it good. It, we don't do no damage. But on this sunny January morning, the temperature is starting to rise above freezing. And that means LaFoe can't run the forwarder much longer, or else he'll start to damage the soil. Winter is a crucial season for loggers like LaFoe. Typically, the frozen ground allows them to access sensitive wooded areas like this nearly every day. But this year, temperatures surged into the 50s in early January, and there's mud and ice where there should be deep snow. You shouldn't be able to see this ground. We should have snow right now. Life should be good. It should be zero degrees. We should be going. Instead, this job has taken LaFoe about two weeks longer than normal, and he'll have to do more work in the summer to repair the rutted logging trails. All told, he guesses the weather will increase his costs by about 17%. Luckily, he paid off all his equipment, like the forwarder, years ago. I guess a good way to put it, if I didn't own all this stuff, I probably wouldn't be doing it right now. I'd be retired. But I think this is shades of things to come. This is David Senio, the forester working with Brian LaFoe on this project. With climate change, winters are becoming shorter and more unpredictable in Vermont. Cutting down trees, which store carbon, could be adding to that climate impact. But Senio argues there's also a climate-positive effect of logging. Responsibly managing forests can make them healthier in the long run. But warming winters limit how often loggers can do that work. How do you make more productive days in a year? You don't. And Senio says all of Vermont's $1.4 billion forest products industry is impacted by the changing climate. Not just loggers, but sawmill operators, too. Goodridge Lumber in Albany, Vermont, relies on loggers like Brian LaFoe for the wood that's running through their sawmill. Workers feed white cedar logs along a spinning saw blade, cutting them into posts and boards. But because loggers haven't been able to harvest as much this year, owner Colleen Goodridge says her sawmill's store of fresh logs is running low. 
this year we don't have that extra inventory that we had last year so we are hoping that you know we have a strong next few weeks sales are good right now goodridge says but it's not clear how long that will last she's thinking of ways to diversify her business like finding markets for lower quality wood still she's trying to be optimistic about the rest of the season i'm hopeful and you know we've had cold weather in april we've had aprils that hung on and hung on and hung on so we just don't know Goodridge has been in the lumber business for 49 years. Her sons are now co-owners. But she's worried about the future of this industry in Vermont. High costs and the unpredictability of a changing climate make it a tough business for young people to enter. One of the many challenges of life, they say, you know, to live is to experience change. (laughs) Well, you know, I guess we're living. Goodridge just hopes the logging industry can adapt to all this change. For NPR News, I'm Henry Epp in northern Vermont. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Demolition work continues on the government center garage in Boston, and that is causing some MBTA disruptions again this weekend. You can expect delays on the Orange Line and Green Line. Orange Line and Green Line trains will skip Haymarket Station today and tomorrow. To get to the Haymarket area, Orange Line riders will need to leave the train at North Station and then walk. Green Line riders will need to disembark at North Station or Government Center. In Randolph, a police investigation is underway after two empty shell casings were found in an elementary school classroom on separate days this week and the week before. Randolph police said the casings were found in a fourth grade room and did not contain live rounds. Each discovery triggered a school-wide shelter in place. Police canines swept the school twice and found no other casings or any weapons. In sports this afternoon, the Celtics take on the Raptors in Toronto. It's 31 degrees in Boston, becoming partly sunny today and highs in the mid-30s. Lows in the mid-20s overnight. Tomorrow, a slight chance of some rain, mainly late in the day, and temperatures in the low 40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. You're not taking our gas stoves away from us. On this week's On the Media, the mere mention of greener appliances generates a whole lot of hot air, all the way to the state house. Wyoming is proposing a bill to ban new sales of electric vehicles. On the next On the Media from WNYC. Today at 1 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Progressive. Progressive commercial insurance protects small businesses from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at progressivecommercial.com. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at aecf.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Somalia's capital, Mogadishu, is one of the most dangerous cities in the world, and yet 
NPR's Jason Bobian reports there are reasons for optimism as an emerging middle class makes its mark on the East African city. In Somalia, Friday is the start of the weekend. And in Mogadishu, Friday is a beach day. Early in the day, before Friday prayers and before the sun gets too hot, people flock to Lido Beach on the eastern side of the city, including 22-year-old Moki Anwar. This is a very important place because, you know, all these people, they came to here to have fun, to enjoy, you know. To us, it's very important to us. The university student says it's one of the few public spaces in Mogadishu that's free and relatively safe. Families sit under cloth awnings on the beach and drink tea. Young men play soccer barefoot on the sand. People wade out into the shallow waters of the Indian Ocean. I'm Dr. Shafi Sharif Mohammed. I'm a managing director of Somali Resurgence Association. Today I came here uh, with my kids. They're here to swim. Shafi says Fridays at Lido Beach are a respite from the hectic work week. The weekdays we have a very full day. We are very busy. As a father and our children go to school, universities, so they are very busy week and uh, now we have exams. So now we need to have some sort of uh, fresh air to come here and to see people are playing around, people are happy. Life in Somalia is still hard, he says, but it's way better than it was in the past. The security situation in particular, Shafi says, has improved dramatically. When you compare five years or ten years ago, someone who is a foreigner, uh, like you know, a media, could not able to come here and talk a peacefully manner. He's talking about me and how unusual it is to have a reporter from America standing on the beach in Mogadishu with a big fuzzy microphone interviewing people. That just didn't happen even a few years ago. He says he's optimistic about the future, and he's not the only one in Mogadishu to feel that way. Somalia is one of the poorest countries in the world. It's facing a historic drought. Attacks by al-Shabaab occur regularly in the capital. Yet many residents now say they're refusing to let fear define their lives. Sitting on the beach in front of the elite hotel, which was partially destroyed by a car bomb two years ago, Asha Mahmoud Warsame says Mogadishu now is relatively peaceful. We're here, Mogadishu is calm. Those who have been threatened in the country has been pushing back. We haven't seen them these days, and we are seeing it's a peaceful in the city. She says this despite multiple bombs going off in Mogadishu earlier in the week. In October, when an al-Shabaab attack on the Ministry of Education killed more than 130 people, a high school graduation ceremony continued just a few blocks away, even as ambulances rushed to the blast site. Asha, who runs a water trucking company, says she's more worried about inflation than terrorist attacks. She says the price of water is up 50% this year. Burhan Warsami Abdi, who served as the chief of staff to the Somali prime minister in 2012, says in addition to attacking inflation, the country needs to rebuild basic governmental institutions. It's a huge challenge. It's basically remaking an entire country. A new president took office in Mogadishu in May of last year, and his top priority has been to defeat al-Shabaab. Security is the biggest issue that's holding Somalia back, but now al-Shabaab is on the run. Burhan says as security improves, Somalis are creating new businesses in Mogadishu. The city has super cheap cell phone service and a fiber optic internet network. A couple who emigrated to Canada years ago have come back and set up a chain of fancy coffee shops. 
Look around in Mogadishu and you will be surprised in the past six, seven years, the million dollar apartments and houses that are being built in the country. And it's the private sector that is driving that growth in the country. He says the relative stability that Mogadishu is enjoying is due to the entrepreneurial spirit of individual Somalis and their faith in their country. Jason Bobian, NPR News, Mogadishu, Somalia. Tozilla stalks no longer. The cane toad is considered a national menace in Australia, even more than tourists from New Zealand. Cane toads were brought to Australia in the 1930s to combat invasive sugarcane beetles, but they often killed the predators who bit into the toad's highly poisonous skin glands. Cane toads don't have to snarl or bite, they just let a snake or a rat try to bite them and get a mouthful of poison. Classic passive-aggressive behavior, isn't it? Cane toads have been implicated in the decline of several native species in Australia, which is believed to now have 200 million of the amphibians. 200 million less one. Park ranger Kylie Gray stumbled across what may be the largest toad ever recorded, 5.95 pounds. It's quickly dubbed Toadzilla, placed in a container, and dispatched. The toad's brown, warty body will be donated at the Queensland Museum so school children can see it and go, Ooh, cool. And now it's time for sports. NFL playoffs and... Uh, an unpredictable first week at the Australian Open. Howard Bryant of Meadowlark Media joins us. Howard, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning, Scott. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Let's uh, let's begin with the NFL playoffs. We have two games today, uh, Kansas City versus Jacksonville. Uh, Philadelphia plays the New York Giants. What are you going to be looking for? Well, obviously, if you're going to Philadelphia, you're going to get a, 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 lot of, a lot of noise. That's a great divisional game, great rivalry game. Philadelphia and New York, of course, we all know to expect from that. Philadelphia is supposedly the best team in the NFL. They've been the best team all season long, and this is supposed to be another step on the way to the Super Bowl for them. But when you play a team three times, it's always going to be difficult. So yeah. I think it's going to be a great game, raucous game, crazy game. But Philadelphia is supposed to be marching to the Super Bowl this year. That would be a pretty good upset for the Giants. Hmm. Tomorrow's late, Dallas uh, faces San Francisco. Let huge me ask, game. Pardon What's me? What's that? What did you say, Howard? I said huge game. Huge game. Yeah, huge game. But, but I still, I want, to be, I want to ask you about Cincinnati and Buffalo. They play each other again just three weeks after DeMar Hamlin's collapse on the field. The game, this game will be in Buffalo it should be very emotional. It's going to be very emotional, and it's also very controversial. I think that it's very difficult for everybody involved as the things that we've talked about, about the dangers of football and all of the things that have come with that. And at the same time, everyone's getting really, really excited because it's playoffs. And, and now that Jamar Hamlin is doing better and he's been at the facility, and so do we just forget what happened? Also, nobody wanted to be or wants to sound insensitive about what's taken place, the way the NFL has handled this, because if you're Cincinnati you're very uh, upset about the fact that you're playing a road game. You're playing in Buffalo. You're, this game might have been a home game had they won that game. But nobody really wants to have that discussion because you do sound insensitive. But now that DeMar Hamlin is out of the uh, ICU and out of the most dangerous part of, uh, you know, of the ordeal that he went through, then people are now talking about what's taking place on the field. And Cincinnati feels cheated. 
And and if you're going to just make it be about football, then you can't blame them. This is going to be a hard game for them. They're going to be in Buffalo, and I'm sure they're thinking that th- this is going to be an even more difficult game that maybe should have been played on their home turf. To tie the playoffs to the Australian Open, because, of course, this business is all about smooth transitions, there uh, is a U.S. tennis player who's showing for por- support for DeMar Hamlin uh, as she plays in Australia. Yeah, and that would be Jessica Pagula. If the name sounds familiar, it's because Terry Pagula, her father, is the owner of the Buffalo Bills. And and Jessica has a, a number three on her tennis kit, which is a a signal, a shout-out to, to DeMar Hamlin. It's been a great tournament for her. She is playing really, really well. Uh, she and Coco Golf happen to be doubles partners as well. Those two could very well make a deep run next week. It's been a crazy, crazy week in in Melbourne on the men's side Novak Djokovic is the is is the last man standing like the Philadelphia Eagles he's supposed to run away with this with this championship but you actually have four players from the United States who have made it this far for the first time since 2004 to have this many uh, be involved, which is not, I'm not a nationalist, it doesn't make a big difference to me, yeah. but for people who love American tennis, um, this is a, 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 a breakthrough because it's been a long time since one of the American men have won, but on the women's side, Coco Goff, Jessica Pagula, right there, ready to win. Howard Bryant, thanks so much. Thank you. Howard Bryant, Henry Marsh had spent four decades in neurosurgery, trying to find a balance, as he puts it, between detachment and compassion. And he became a patient himself, diagnosed with an incurable form of prostate cancer. Looking over the cliff of life into his own mortality inspired his latest book about the race between life and death, the way we will all, God willing, a phrase I don't think Dr. Marsh would use, one day just fall apart. His book, and finally, Matters of Life and Death, Dr. Marsh, who's also author of the best-selling Do No Harm and a commander of the British Empire, joins us from London. Thanks so much for being with us. It's a pleasure. How could a world-renowned doctor miss so many signals you said you had that you were ill? Because I'm a human being and a typical doctor. And I think the typical doctors, we divide the human race into us who are doctors and them who are patients. And illness only happens to patients. So it was a combination of sort of excessive detachment and denial at a deep, more or less unconscious level. It's not unusual for doctors, I'm told, to present late with their cancer. And what was it like to go from being a revered figure in hospital scrubs to some guy in a gown with a flap over his derriere? To be honest, I thought it was funny. (laughs) I was able to laugh at myself. I mean, it's not nice being a patient, but it kind of appealed to my sense of the absurd in a way (laughs) that having been this all-powerful surgeon, I was now just another old man with prostate cancer. Did you find doctors, as I'm afraid I have noticed when I've been in a hospital, doctors talking to each other right over the patient's head as if the patients weren't there? That didn't happen to me, but I know it happens a lot. I was just talking to my sister, who uh, has been in hospital recently, and it had exactly that phenomenon. It's because, well, it's partly as doctors, we have to be detached to some extent from patients, particularly if you do very dangerous surgery, as I did. And patients rarely, if ever, criticise doctors to their face. 
Well, because we're afraid you'll pull the plug on us. Exactly. As a patient, one is terrified of displeasing the person upon whom your life depends, particularly surgeons, particularly brain surgeons. Tell us about that detachment you write about that's necessary for a surgeon to operate, not necessarily to the exclusion of compassion, but detachment has to take over. As soon as you become a doctor, you learn, I don't think anybody ever told me this, but the most frightening thing for a patient is a frightened doctor. And as a young doctor, and even as a senior doctor, you're often pretty anxious, given the nature of the work. Patients want you to be calm, assured, encouraging, and you have to sort of swallow your doubts and anxieties. And of course, the best way to deceive other people is to deceive oneself. And I think all doctors, particularly at the beginning of their careers, we sort of pump up our self-esteem with a considerable amount of pretense, although it's quite fragile. You believe that, that doctors, I, I won't put it this way, lying to, but you think doctors should humor their patients. Very much so. And this is another difficult balancing act you have to do between being honest, you must never lie to patients, but you must never deprive them of hope. Um, more or less, and sometimes that is very, very difficult. But of course, the way you talk to people, if you say there is a 5% chance this could kill you, is very different from saying, look, there's a 95% chance everything will be fine. Yes, there's a small risk things might go badly. You can give them the same statistical information with a very different sort of emotional framing to it. Your cancer, I gather from everything I've read, is now in remission. Yes, but I don't know for how long. <laughs> do you see every day in a different way now? Well, I do now. It's, it's very interesting, actually. Um, I had two years of hormone therapy, which, as I discuss in the book, is essentially chemical castration. Lots of side effects, most of them irritating but bearable, weight gain, slight breast development getting muscular weakness. What I didn't realize until I came off it two months ago is that it really profoundly affected my mood. And I was actually quite depressed and felt very gloomy about my future and was ruminating morbidly about what time I had left. For the last few weeks, I've been completely happy. I've got my next PSA in three weeks' time. It may well show my PSA is starting to go up and the cancer's coming back. Totally to my surprise, I've acquired this sort of Buddhist Zen outlook. Well, the future doesn't exist. I'm well, I'm happy at the moment. I've had a wonderful, exciting life. I've made lots of mistakes. I've trampled on people. Yeah, 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 as I discuss in my books. But at the moment, today, the sun is shining. I'm very well. It's not that I'm in denial, but I think, well, all right, it may be bad news in three weeks' time, but about three weeks away. At the moment, I'm well. I'm going to chance this question with you, doctor, having stared life and, and, for that matter, your own death in the face. What's important in life? What should we really try to achieve? A close, loving family and work position in society which is meaningful, which is about making the world a better place rather than getting a bigger, having a bigger bank account. Dr. Henry Marsh's new book, and finally... Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you very much.
This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. From Noom, providing an online evaluation and the tools to help people lead healthier lives through behavior change. More information at Noom, N-O-O-M dot com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Wait, wait, don't tell me is next at 10 o'clock. And stay with WBUR at 11 on It's Been a Minute. You'll hear about concerns among artists over new AI technology that threatens to replace them. It is 31 degrees in Boston with partial sunshine today and highs in the mid-30s. Lows in the mid-20s overnight. Tomorrow, a slight chance of some rain, mainly late in the day, and highs in the low 40s. Monday, some rain and highs again in the low 40s. Hi, I'm Lauren Summer. I cover climate change at NPR, so I'm particularly interested in the surge of interest in electric cars. If your next car is going to be electric, be sure to donate your old car to this station. You'll be doing your part to lower your carbon footprint, and we'll turn your old car into more coverage of everything that matters to you. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.